Heavenly Father, once again, we approach your holy, inerrant, infallible word. We ask for you to open our eyes so that we can see the wonderful things that are in your law. Father, we, we thank you that you have given us your word. And now we pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Show us the true meaning of this passage. We want to understand it. And then, Father, also help us to apply it and put it into practice in our lives. We don't just simply want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It used to be that reporters and journalists adhered to a code so that when they were interviewing a source or or someone for an article, they would only print or publish what they said publicly with permission. And that was called on the record. So if someone was speaking on the record, they knew that their words were going to be reported. They knew that their words were going to be in print somewhere or made known to others. And anything spoken off the record was not to be made public. So there was on the record, and then there was off the record. I think we've all seen movies or or maybe some TV shows where a reporter or a journalist is interviewing someone and and things are going well, There's, there's give and take, and then all of a sudden they hit a question that might be a little sensitive or a little hard to answer, and the the source says, well, no comment. And then the reporter follows up quickly and says, what about off the record? And the source considers it for a moment, says, turn off the recorder, and then they say, okay, off the record, and then blah, 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 whatever it is they're going to say. And then they conclude by saying, but don't print that, because it's confidential. It's off the record. In John 1, 19-34, the witness of John the Baptist is recorded for us. And John says something about himself. He says that he is the voice in the wilderness, crying out, preparing the way for the Lord from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. But John also states something about Jesus. He testifies or bears witness to the identity of of Jesus, and everything John the Baptist says is on the record. It's public. It's designed to be made known. He's on the record. Now, in addition to making sure we understand this passage, as always, we're going to do a walkthrough. We want to understand. We want to see this. We're going to understand each of these terms that are presented here for the first time. We also want to end with a challenge slash application question, and it's this. How often is our testimony or our witness for Jesus on the record? And that's the question we're going to be asking before we're done this morning. So let me read the passage. This is John 1, 19-34, the testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed... I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but when he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I want to reread 19 through 21 in just a moment, but before I do, I think it's important to identify the players. We need to, we need to track down the meaning of some of these terms, because if you're not familiar with the New Testament, uh, these, these might seem uh, some words that really don't have any anchor points for you. So I think it's important to understand these. A lot of these words are going to show up in the rest of the book of John, and so we might as well knock them out right now. First of all, the Jews. He begins by saying that the Jews sent priests and Levites. When John uses the phrase, the Jews, in his gospel, he is usually referring to Jewish leaders and other Jewish people, primarily in Jerusalem, who stood opposed and actively worked against Jesus. So when we see that phrase, the Jews, it's referring to Jesus' enemies. Not all the time. There are a couple of times in the book of John where it's used in a neutral sense or a positive sense. But as a whole, this is describing the widespread opposition to Jesus among his own people. So that's what the Jews means. Priests and Levites. For this one, we have to remember our Old Testament history. Uh, Remember, Abraham had a son Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob was renamed by God Israel. He had 12 sons. One of them was Levi. And then they uh, they went down to the Egyptians. Uh, The Egyptians sojourned for about 400 years. While there, they multiplied. And then by the time of the Exodus, they had grown, each tribe, into the tens of thousands. And so when we see Levites, it means someone who has descended from the tribe of Levi. The Levites had been called by God and set apart by God to assist the priests and to manage and to take care of the tabernacle and the temple. So these were the ones that that helped set up and erect the, the tabernacle. They took it down. They transported it. They were in charge of all the articles in the tabernacle or in the temple. And they assisted the the priests in their duties. So by the time we get to the first century, of course, we don't have a tabernacle anymore. By the time of Jesus, remember, that's gone. We have the temple made out of stone. It's, It's permanent. 
And so there's no tent to take care of. By this time, the, pre, the Levites still assisted the priests. Some of them served in a, a musical capacity. Some of them served as temple police. And they still helped guard and keep the temple. So those are the Levites. The priests were also Levites, but they were also descendants of Aaron. In Exodus 28, God called out Aaron and his sons to be priests. And they were the ones that were in charge of the sacrificial atonement. They were the ones that, that performed all those duties. They would bless the people. And in order to be a priest, you had to be a Levite and a descendant of Aaron. By the time Jesus came around, the, not all the priests served all the time. The priesthood was divided into divisions and, and not all the divisions were on duty. And that's why some of these priests are sent and could be envoys to John the Baptist to question him. So those are the priests. Jerusalem, this was the most important city for the Jewish people, hands down. It was ground zero for everything Jewish, for everything religious. This is where the temple was. This is where the Sanhedrin was. This was the, the council that, that oversaw all things Jewish. This is where Jesus was crucified. The, the Jerusalem city of Jerusalem was, was ground zero for all Jews. The Christ, this is a, a Greek word for the Hebrew word for Messiah. The people of God were expecting a deliverer and they knew him as the Messiah. So the Messiah was the one anointed by God to deliver his people. So they were looking for the Christ. Elijah, this was, uh, uh, he was a prophet in the Old Testament and the last prophet, uh, the last one to, to, to prophesy and to write in the Old Testament was Malachi and he received uh, a message that said that Elijah would come before the Christ. Here's Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now again, if you remember your Old Testament, Elijah did not die a natural death. He was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, or we might call it a tornado. And so there were some people who actually believed that Elijah was going to literally come down and, and come back and minister and prophesy before the great day of the Lord and before the Christ. That's why they question, are you this man? Are you John the Baptist? Are you Elijah? Because he kind of looked like him. They both wore garments of hair. They both wore leather belts. They were both, they were both kind of rough and ready and, 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 and really uh, outspoken prophets. So they questioned him. Now, interestingly, in verse 21, John the Baptist, of course, denies that he is Elijah. Uh, yet later, Jesus says, no, he is the Elijah. And so some people get tripped up by the apparent contradiction. They say, wait a minute, John says he's not, but Jesus says he is. So which is it? Well, here's the answer. Um, Matthew 11 sheds some light on this. This is Jesus. He says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So John the Baptist knew that he himself was not literally Elijah come back, coming back from heaven. He knew that. He had a normal birth. He, he grew up. And he said, no, I'm not him. But Jesus says, yes, he is the Elijah to come because he fulfills everything that Malachi prophesied. He's fulfilling that role that, that prophecy, and it fits. 
And so he is the one. Don't look for anybody else. He is the Elijah who is to come. So another way to put it is this. Jesus knew more about John the Baptist than John the Baptist did. And that's still true today for all of us. Jesus knows a lot more about us than we know about ourselves. Um, And then one more piece of evidence. You might find this helpful. This is Malachi 4, 5, a little bit expanded. And then also Luke 1, 16 and 17. And the context of that Luke 1 quotation, of course, is the angel Gabriel announcing the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah, his father. And and look at the, the parallels here. Behold, Malachi says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then Luke says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to read those two passages and know that they're talking about the same man. Finally, the prophet. The prophet is a reference to a, uh, a person that the Jews were expecting based on Deuteronomy 18. And that says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among brothers. That's Moses speaking. It is to him you shall listen. And then this is God speaking. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he, will, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the people of God at this time were expecting a Moses-like prophet to show up, speaking the words of God. That's what the prophet is. Now, of course, we know from the rest of the Bible that the prophet is not John the Baptist, and he denies it. The prophet is Jesus. The prophet of Deuteronomy 18 is Jesus Christ himself. He is the prophet par excellence. He is the prophet above all other prophets. He reveals the word of God. He is the word of God, John 1, 1 tells us. And so this last line of Deuteronomy is actually a warning passage for anyone who does not hear the words of Jesus Christ and respond in faith. God says, I myself will require it of him. So those are the players. Now having that background, let's read the first few verses again. It makes much more sense. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews, Jesus' enemies, sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. John says, I'm none of those. I'm none of those big three. And then in verse 22, we start to see his answer. 22, the delegation says, okay, then who are you? We need to go back with an answer. We're not going to return to our superiors empty-handed. You need to ID yourself. Verse 23, John the Baptist denies being Christ, Elijah the prophet, but he does make a claim. Please note, he doesn't just blow them off. In other words, it's not a no comment. John doesn't receive this question and say, no comment, or yeah, I'm not, don't worry about it, or I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. He doesn't evade their question. He goes on the record, 
saying that he was sent by God in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is still a major claim to say, yes, I am standing as the literal flesh and blood fulfillment of this prophecy. He's going on the record saying he's that man. And it's interesting, if we go back and through the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them take the time to include that full quotation from Isaiah 43. None of the gospel writers want us to miss that. This is who John the Baptist is. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 43. And then John points to Jesus. Verse 24, before he, um, he does that, we find this parenthetical note about the delegation of priests and Levites that have been sent to question him. It says they were sent by the Pharisees. Now, there's a grammatical issue with this. We're not going to get technical but I just want to explain this in case you have a Bible that reads differently. The ESV says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. The NIV says, now the Pharisees who had been sent. King James says, and they which were sent were of the Pharisees. Regardless, this is another key term that we need to familiarize ourselves with because it is going to show up a lot in the Gospel of John. We need to understand who the Pharisees are. These were one of two religious parties two main religious parties that were active in the first century during the time of Jesus. There were Pharisees and there were Sadducees. And most religious leaders belonged to one of those two parties. The Sadducees, now there's a lot of differences between these two parties, but one of them is the Sadducees held that the only thing that was authoritative, the only thing that was binding on, on everyday life and practice was the literal word of God. That's it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, said, oh yeah, we believe that, and we also consider binding tradition and oral law and things that we have added to the law. That's also binding. Now, that's a big difference. The, the Pharisees were extremely religious they were meticulous in following every single aspect, not only of the law, but also that oral law that they had imposed themselves upon the law. Sometimes their understanding of the law, sometimes this, this body of, of knowledge and these extra things that they had added to the, the law, sometimes it, it interfered with actually following out the true law. Sometimes their traditions replaced some of the things that God had said. So something that man came up with actually replaced something that, that God had, had commanded. So that was not good, and that, that plays out in the Gospels. You see Jesus calling them out, calling them out on that. Uh, the Pharisees, the, the word Pharisee comes from a word that means to separate. So they considered themselves the separated ones, meaning separated from everybody else. So, so they were up here, Everybody else was down there. We, we are the go-to people for all things religious. We are the ones who know how to live rightly before God. And so we're going to tell you all how to do it right. We're doing it right. We're going to tell you. Those were the Pharisees. Verse 34. Why are you baptizing if you're not one of these big three? On what authority are you doing this? The, the, delega the delegation was saying this. If you were the Christ or Elijah or the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, okay, 
Um, we'll, we'll give you the respect you need. You, you can do that if you're one of those big three. But you just said you weren't. So you've got a lot of explaining to do, John, for a couple of reasons. First, the Jews considered themselves already in with God. They, they considered themselves to be among the people of God with no further need to do anything else. Uh, they were kind of like automatically in. In other words, why should we submit to a baptism? You're calling other Jews to a cleansing type of baptism. Why should we do that? We don't need to cleanse ourselves uh, symbolically from the defilement of the Gentile world. Who are you, John? So that was number one objection. We have Abraham as our father. We don't need anything else. Number two, in most cases, in that time, ritual baptism was something that the person being baptized did themselves. They would wash themselves. John's asking them to submit to his baptism. And so the other objection would have been, what makes you so special? You just said you weren't one of these big three. Why should anyone submit themselves or place themselves underneath your baptism? What makes you so special? On what authority are you doing this? John answers them. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He says, yeah, I baptize. And then immediately he turns the focus back to Jesus. He's saying, look, the, the one that is greater than I am is already here. He's among you. you. You don't recognize him, you haven't seen him, but there is somebody much greater than I am. That's the one you should be looking at and, and paying attention to. And then he, he says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Disciples did a lot of things for their teachers in this culture. Um, and in fact, they did pretty much everything. They, it was a very authoritative relationship. If, if the teacher said something, then the disciple did it. For the most part, without question. But they did not untie sandals. They did not stoop down and, and get on their knees and untie the sandals. Not only is that just posture of, of kneeling down before somewhat um, you know, demeaning, but it, there was a lot of social stigma associated with that. The only person that did that were slaves and servants. In fact, there's a rabbinical saying, a rabbinical saying from 250, which most likely was in play way before that, that says this, every service which a slave performs for his master, shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosening of a sandal thong. You do everything he asks, but not that. We, we draw the line somewhere. Yeah, I'm ready to learn for you. I'm ready to do whatever you ask, but I'm not doing that. Slaves do that. And John is saying, that's above me. When it comes to Jesus, I'm not worthy to do that task. That's still above me. That's how much importance John the Baptist assigns to Jesus. Verse 28 tells us where these things took place, the Bethany across the Jordan River, as opposed to the Bethany, the much more well-known Bethany. There's a small village or small town Bethany right outside of Jerusalem, and this is 
John's way of saying, no, not that one, but the one out by the Jordan River. And then John's witness. When we get to verse 29, this is really the heart of his witness. This is the core of John the Baptist's witness that he's going on record to testify about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John has already referenced Isaiah back in verse 23. He's drawing from Isaiah again. Here's Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then this verse is two verses after Isaiah 53, 5, which says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That, that verse is just filled it's overflowing with this substitutionary language of, of that person, the lamb. He did all this on our behalf. He took the, 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 the crushing. He took the chastisement and his wounds. That's for our benefit. So John is pointing to Jesus as the lamb of God. Jesus was led to the slaughter. Jesus' blood paid for the sin of all people God has chosen for salvation. So Jesus is the Lamb of Isaiah 53. Now, did John know exactly how Jesus was the Lamb of God? No. Did John the Baptist at this time know exactly how Jesus was going to take away the sin of the world? No. But he knew this. That designation belonged to that man standing in front of him. He knew that. And he went on record saying, yes, that's him. That's the Lamb, Lamb of God. Verse 30 is the chronological priority issue. We talked about this last week, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But this is where John says, no, the person who came after me, Jesus, really ranks above me because he came before me. That's because in the Old Testament times, uh, people often thought whoever came first was greater. So... Um, if you had teaching that, and you said, well, this came from my father's, people might say, oh, oh, okay. But if you said, this came from my father's father and his father before him, oh, well, that's got to be better. It's older. It has, has, it's been established longer. So this is to address that. John says, no, I, I realize that he's coming after me, but he actually ranks before because he is before me. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. He was there at the beginning. Uh, verse 31, I myself did not know him. John's saying, look, I didn't know that this man was the Son of God until the events he's going to describe in verses 32 and 33. That was the moment that I knew. Yet, he reveals his purpose, that he might be revealed to Israel. John understands his role, and he's delighted to play this role. If you know about John the Baptist, you know that he didn't exactly have what we might call a comfortable life. I made reference a few moments ago that he wore garments of, of hair, he wore animal skins. That's not exactly fine clothing. He, the Bible tells us, ate locusts and wild honey. So he ate bugs. That was his diet. He wasn't dining on sumptuous food at the king's table. He, he had this wilderness ministry. We can be fairly sure he didn't have a nice house out by the River Jordan. He probably lived in a tent or some kind of temporary shelter. 
And of course, we know the rest of the story. He ended up getting executed. So John did not have a, a um, comfortable life. Uh, this was not a cush job that God had called him to, but yet he is delighted. He is thrilled to play a small part. John, John is just so happy. He's so happy to be anywhere in, in contact with Jesus' ministry. He's kind of like the stagehand that, that never gets any attention, that doesn't come after, after the show is over and take a bow. He's, he's over on the side in the dark working the ropes, pulling the curtain open as Jesus walks out on the world stage. And John says, I'm just so happy to do that. I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed to be able to point people to Jesus and to testify to him. And then this is his testimony. Verse 32, John bore witness. Means to testify, to establish the truth. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. This is the, the heart of John's testimony. He's saying, look, I'm going on the record. I'm saying that I saw Jesus confirmed as the Son of God by God. You can print that. Run, run the story. I'm, I'm going on the record. That's what I'm testifying to. I saw it. This is exactly what God told me would happen. It happened, and now I'm testifying. This is my witness. I saw Jesus identified, marked as the Son of God by God himself. That's a powerful testimony. And that's on the record. What about this phrase, he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? And we walked through this. If you were here for the First Corinthians series, then you know we walked through this in detail. You can go back and listen to those. They're online if you want to. But that doesn't mean I'm just going to ignore it. It's here. So we're going to briefly talk about it. This is what Jesus said about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.5 For John, meaning John the Baptist, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So see, you see Jesus contrasting John's water baptism with the Holy Spirit baptism that will take place not many days from now. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. If you look in the passage, you see earlier, back up here in verse um, 28, I baptize with water. Uh, verse 33, uh, he sent me to baptize with water. And then it says, he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So they're both comparing and contrasting water baptism, Holy Spirit baptism. We know they're talking about the same thing. John's talking about Jesus. Jesus is talking about John. Same thing. The key or the clue to understanding what Jesus is saying about Holy Spirit baptism is when. He says, not many days from now. And if we keep reading through Acts 1, we know that not many days from then, the Holy Spirit is poured out onto the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost. Tongues of fire came and rested upon them. There was a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church on Pentecost. So that is what Jesus is talking about when he says baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's referring to that event. 
it marked what theologian Douglas Kelly says it was, quote, the full entrance of God's people into the new covenant. So that's what that's about. It's, it's not talking about um, what our, our Pentecostal or charismatic brothers and sisters might be referring to with any kind of so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a misunderstanding of scripture. And then verse 34, one final statement summarizing John the Baptist's witness. He says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John is being clear. There shouldn't be any question from any of the people that were around John the Baptist about what he believes about Jesus. This was on the record. There were witnesses. There was a delegation from Jerusalem. John repeated himself. It was a proclamation. And he went on the record. Let's summarize this passage by saying John the Baptist was confronted with a delegation from Jerusalem who demanded to know who he was. He answered by first telling them who he was not, and then by telling them that he was the one prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 43, the one who is to prepare the way of the Lord. John humbly yet powerfully pointed people to Jesus and gave strong eyewitness testimony that Jesus was the Son of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. I think it's important and and noteworthy to point out something about this passage. I, I want us to see that this passage begins and ends with the testimony of John the Baptist. If you look at verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John. And then you see in verse 34, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So at the beginning of the passage, we have, this is the testimony of John. And at the end of the passage, we have, and here's John's testimony. That is called an inclusio. And it's a literary device that that acts kind of as bookends that frames the passage. It it marks the beginning and the ending of of a section in the Bible. And it also tips us off, the reader, to let us know that whatever is being talked about in those bookends is the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is the testimony or the witness of John the Baptist. And remember, testimony, or to testify, means to confirm and to give evidence for. For what? We don't have to wonder. Go back to verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And this is why we've named this series just that simple. It's that formula. Jesus plus belief equals life. Just that simple. This is the same message that John's presenting with this witness. John, the author John, is presenting John the Baptist as a witness so that people will have sufficient grounds to place their faith in Jesus as the Son of God. That's his point. If you've never believed in Jesus, then this book is for you. This passage is for you. God is speaking to you in in this passage. He's telling you, look, Believe this witness. Believe in Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the only one who can take away your sin. John the Baptist went on record testifying that Jesus was the Son of God. He was the sacrificial lamb. But when reporters 
gather facts for a story, they, they first of all ask and make sure and get permission that this is on the record. And then after that, they gather the information and they take their notes or, or recording or whatever they want. But the other thing that good reporters and journalists do is that they check their sources. They want to know if the person they interviewed is reliable. They, they want to know if there's anybody out there that will, that will vouch for this person. Is, is, this, is this person trustworthy or not? And so they check their sources. So we could ask, as a reader, does John the Baptist check out? Can, is there anyone out there that could vouch for him? Is he reliable? And the answer is yes. Matthew 11, 11, This is Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Does he check out? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus just gave him an endorsement and called him the greatest of all people born of woman. Yeah, John, John has someone to vouch for him. That means he's a reliable source. And that if John the Baptist says something, you can take it to the bank. John is saying, I saw Jesus marked as the Son of God by God. There is only one way, one road, one path, one door to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. Everyone's sin demands a reckoning from God, and we can either put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, who made that payment, who satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf, or we can try to go it alone. And we can face the wrath of God on our own without anything standing in between us and, and the wrath of God. So if you're here this morning and if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I think it's appropriate to ask yourself, am I willing to take the penalty for my sin myself? Or do I want to place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have him receive it and take the penalty for me on the cross? I think that's a valid question. And the good news is this. I promise you on the authority of Scripture, if you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, if you repent of your sin and turn to him and commit your life to following him, he will forgive your sin and he will stand with you. He will stand with you every day of your life from now until the day you die. And then he will stand with you at death. He will stand with you and he will be your shield. He will be your defender. And you will have no fear as you come into judgment before God Almighty. Because Jesus will stand with you. And he cannot fail. If it's possible for the Father to disown the Son, then it would be possible for him to fail in securing your salvation. So I invite you to turn to Jesus in faith. That's the overall goal of this passage, is to present a witness to people so they believe in Jesus Christ. 
For those of us in Christ, for those that, that have and are believing in Jesus, I want to ask an application slash challenge question. It's the same one I asked at the beginning. Here it is. How often is our witness and our testimony for Jesus on the record? How often is it public when we testify about Jesus? Now, when John gave his testimony, it was on the record. I mean, we've already established that. There was this official delegation. They had their voice recorders going. Whatever he said was going to be reported back to their, to their superiors in Jerusalem. And so John knew this is on the record. And, of course, when something's on the record, that means it could come back to bite you later. They could, they could, they've got it in print. They've got you on the record saying something. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. John was bound and put into prison by Herod because John was speaking out against and preaching against the sinful lifestyle of Herod. So he had him bound and put in prison. And then eventually he had him beheaded. That's how that worked out. John was not afraid to go on record with his witness about Jesus. Are we? Have you ever been fearful about going on the record for Jesus? I remember talking with a man who told me about the first time he went on the record with his testimony. He was talking with an old friend of his on the phone. And it was one of these friends that he knew back from, from school days, but now they live several states away, so they didn't talk very often. And as these conversations went, they spent the first few minutes catching up on family and then how's work going. And, and then eventually the conversation turned to the friend asking, well, so what else are you up to? And the man said, well, I've been spending a lot of time at church. And the friend said, really? What kind of church? Presbyterian? Why? And the man telling me this said he, he paused, he hesitated, because... His family knew that he was a believer. His, his church brothers and sisters knew he was a believer. And some of his close friends knew, but not everybody knew. And this, this friend didn't know. And he knew in that moment, he, was, he had a decision to make. Either he was going to say it or not. And he decided to say it. He said, well, you should know, I've become a follower of Jesus Christ. And he said it was so freeing. It, 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 it felt right to finally confess with his mouth what he believed in his heart. That was the first time he went on record with his witness for Jesus. Can any of us relate to that? Have you ever been in that situation? You've had an opportunity to, to go on record? And by going on record, I mean declare that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. State, matter of fact, yes, I, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. Maybe it's been a group of people Maybe there's been a window of opportunity. Maybe you've seen it kind of coming. You've seen the opening. Maybe the Holy Spirit's conviction was there. And then there's that moment and you have to decide, do I say something? Do I not say something? And you hesitate and you pause and then doubt creeps in. And then all of a sudden the moment's over and we're talking about something else. You know what that's called? That's called no comment. When God opens the door for us to give our witness and we say nothing, that's called no comment. I'm not going to talk about it. Somebody might say, well, I don't always have to go on record because I witness with my actions and my behavior. Great. If 
Fantastic. I think we're all for uh, acting morally upright. I think we're all behind uh, following Christ with our actions and making sure our walk matches our talk. But I also hope we realize that not saying anything and just trying to live rightly only is going to take us so far. That's, that's still, because there's no words, it, it still has to fall into the no comment category. John went on record. John used words. Look, look back at the text. Verse 23, he said. Verse 26, John answered. Verse 29, and the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said. Verse 32, and John bore witness. Then he spoke. The last verse, 34, is in quotation marks, meaning this is a direct quotation from John the Baptist. John said, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Our testimony, our witness for Jesus Christ was never meant to be off the record. It was never meant to be something that we keep confidential between ourselves and and God and our other believers. It was designed to go on the record. God intends for it to go on the record. To witness for Christ means we go on record for Christ. We say words publicly to point to and witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask us this morning, can we commit to doing something? Can we commit as believers and making sure that we don't supply any more no comments? Can we do that? When faced with that opportunity, when there's that moment, can we go on the record? Can we witness? Can we, can we share our testimony? He went on the cross for us. We can go on the record for him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for John recording the testimony, the witness of John the Baptist. And Father, it's convicting to see someone like John proclaiming so boldly, willing to go to prison and 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 do and it, he did go to prison and, and die for it, Father. It's it's convicting. And so, Father, we first of all ask for forgiveness for for any time that we may have had that opportunity and, and we've seen it and we felt your conviction and yet decided to to not comment. And Father, we ask for a full measure of your Spirit so that we can go forth when that moment arises that we can share our faith that we can witness for Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's now stand as we sing our closing hymn, You Are My King.